So today I want to continue our series, Mission 2022. As we look in the book of Acts and the first century church, the birth of the New Testament church. So the title of my sermon today is A Modern Miracle. A Modern Miracle. And the reason I'm titling these sermons this way is because I want us to see that even though the events in the book of Acts was in the first century, um, you know, before even the year 100, that they are just as relevant to us today as they were to the people then. That God's word is not something that gets outdated. God's word is not something that kind of runs out of steam just because the modern era continues to progress. But God's word endures forever. The Bible teaches that when everything else fades, God's word is still going to stand. And that's why we can stand on his word as the authority of our lives, the authority of everything that we do, and know that we can count on it and rely on it. Know that it's always true, it's always accurate, and it gives us a security and a peace that people of other religions and other worldviews can never have and can never understand. So if you will, go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. And we're just going to read those first four verses to get us started. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So the Bible says this, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Let's pray. Dear God, we are thankful for your word. Lord, we're thankful for these events in the first century, Lord, as the apostles and the followers, Lord Jesus, of you and what you taught and your truth began to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that they could then evangelize the world with the gospel. Today, God, as we think through this miracle, Lord, we know that this miracle is not over. And what we mean by that, Lord, is that this people can still be saved. People can still be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we are thankful, God, for the outpouring of your Spirit today. We ask your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, be with us in this service. Speak to our hearts. Convict hearts, Holy Spirit. We worship you and we love you because you are indeed God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word Pentecost sometimes has some uh, negative or uneasy associations. You know, we think of Pentecostal holiness churches or Church of God churches. You know, and those are, some, those are good people. We know they love Jesus. But as Baptists, we don't necessarily hold to all the beliefs that they hold to. Um, we think about unknown tongues and people standing up in church speaking in tongues. I'm actually going to be preaching a series on the char- well, I'm going to title the charismatic confusion uh, in, in, in a few weeks or whatever. But we're going to address why we as Baptists don't believe that you can stand up and just start speaking in an unknown tongue in a church service, that that's not biblical. But when we think of Pentecost, a lot of times we associate it with those tongues, people speaking in tongues. And we have a messed up idea of what that actually was. We don't fully understand what happened here in this actual historical event that took place in the first century. What many Christians don't realize is that Pentecost was actually a Jewish festival that was instituted in the days of Moses. And you can find that in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15. The actual day of Pentecost was nothing new. Um, That had been a feast that had been celebrated by the Israelites in the wilderness and had probably been celebrated some 1,500 times up to this point here in history. They would have celebrated, celebrated it once a year. It would have been 50 days after the first fruits, which was another festival that the Jews celebrated. The beautiful thing, though, about the Bible and the way that 
the New Testament lines up with the Old Testament is, is that those Jewish festivals played a huge role in the New Testament. Even so much so that Jesus actually died on the day after Passover. We know that Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples on Passover, was sharing a meal with them in the upper room. Well, the next day was Passover. Or that day was Passover, and the next day Jesus was crucified. The Bible then teaches the day after that, which would have been the Sabbath, Saturday, would have started the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the Bible teaches the day after the Sabbath was what's known as the Day of First Fruits. And then if you look in Leviticus 23, 15, it says 50 days after the first fruits, you were to celebrate the day of Pentecost. So the Jews were celebrating Pentecost like they had for the last 1,500 years. But this day of Pentecost was different. This day of Pentecost was going to bring something that they had never experienced before. You know, Jesus would have walked the earth 40 days after his resurrection. After he had risen from the dead, he was appearing to the disciples and the apostles that said to some of the women for 40 days before he ascended to heaven, which means that if he appeared for 40 days after his resurrection, he would have ascended on that 40th day. Ten days later, we would have had this event called the Pentecost. So it was still fresh in the apostles' mind of being with Jesus and seeing Jesus in his resurrected body. They would have been very fresh on their mind watching him ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And now, ten days after the ascension, we have this beautiful thing called Pentecost. So there's three different things that I want us to look at here in these uh, 13 or 14 verses. And I want us to think about how modern this miracle is in that people can still be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. People can still be saved by the Holy Spirit. And as we as a mission-minded church want to reach our community and world for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be a people who embraces the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing I want us to look at, if you're taking notes, write this down, is the key ingredient. The key ingredient. You say, Ben, okay, so this day of Pentecost, it was a day when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon mankind. Jesus had prophesied of this coming of the Holy Spirit. He even told his disciples, he said, I have to go away. Because if I don't go away, then the comforter will not come. The helper will not come. We know that those were names for the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, if I don't leave, then the Holy Spirit won't come. In other words, to minister to you in my place. As Bible-believing Christians and as historic Orthodox Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit is fully God. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. That the Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is just as much God as God the Father. And we believe in that co-equality of the Godhead, saying that all three are equally one God, yet separate persons. So here we have this key ingredient, which was the Holy Spirit. Now, think about this. Let's say you get up to make an omelet. And let's say you don't have eggs. Can you still make an omelet? No. That's a key ingredient in making an omelet, right? Well, maybe, maybe you've eaten a hamburger, but the problem was, as you're eating it, you're thinking, you know, something's really missing on this hamburger. Come to find out there wasn't a hamburger patty on it. Can you even call that a hamburger, by the way? You ever heard somebody order a cheeseburger but hold the cheese? It doesn't make sense. There are certain key ingredients that you have to have. How about the insanity of a root beer float without the root beer? It wouldn't work, would it? It just doesn't make sense. In the same way, 
the day of Pentecost, and even your salvation and my salvation, the moment that we accepted Jesus as our Savior, does not and cannot make sense without the Holy Spirit. Actually, as a matter of fact, a soul cannot be saved unless the power of the Holy Spirit is present, unless he is pulling that person to a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. He is the one who convicts you of your sin. He is the one that brings to your understanding that you need Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of us think when we got saved that we just decided one day, I need Jesus. And we just thought, well, I'm just going to accept Jesus today. That's not actually how that played out. Whether you know it or not, God was working in your heart through the person of the Holy Spirit showing you and revealing to you your need for him and your sinfulness and revealing to you the fact that Jesus died for you and rose again for the salvation of your soul. When a preacher is preaching and sharing the gospel and there's people who feel conviction or there's people who begin to get uncomfortable, it's not because of any other reason other than the Holy Spirit is working in their heart to pull them and draw them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The promised Holy Spirit was poured out at the day of Pentecost. Now, the reason that this is different, the reason that this is different as opposed to what happened in the Old Testament, if you go into the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is there. And he is mentioned in the Old Testament. But he worked differently. Before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of believers differently. He never permanently indwelled the believer in the Old Testament. You can read about several of the Old Testament characters who the Holy Spirit would come upon, he would empower them to do a great and mighty work, and then he would leave them again. See, we live in a special time known as a dispensation in God's Word, which is a time period where God deals with his children in a particular way, in a different way. And we live in this dispensation known as the dispensation of grace. It's marked basically by Calvary, the resurrection, and Pentecost, and it extends all the way to the rapture of the church. And during this period of time, the Holy Spirit permanently indwells believers, empowering them to live for God, empowering them to live the life that God has called them to live. And we become the temple of God. That's why the Bible teaches that we are literally the house of God. He literally, not figuratively, not symbolically, but God himself literally lives inside of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. So we live in a special time, and we ought to be thankful that we live on this side of the cross and on this side of the rapture because God is moving in a special way now that he never has in the past. And Pentecost really initiated that. It's interesting that even in the book of Joel, which is one of the minor prophets, would have been written several hundred years before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. He actually prophesied of this event. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, the Bible says this, After this, I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. Here we have the prophecy of the coming of the Holy Spirit. See, in the Old Testament, God dealt primarily with the Jews and the nation of Israel. He, he did not make it a common practice to deal with Gentiles, to move in Gentile cities. Now, we have a few exceptions, um, like um, the Assyrian Empire, whenever Nineveh was saved, 
um, when Jonah had went and preached to Nineveh, and it says that from the, from the impoverished all the way to the king, they repented of their sins. So God did indeed save Gentiles even in the Old Testament, but it was not a common practice. But with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this is what initiated a new age. An age where God would not only move mightily in the nation of Israel and to the Jews, but also into the Gentile nations. We see that in the book of Acts, it begins where Peter and the apostles are ministering to the Jewish nation. And there comes a point where the Jews continually reject the gospel, where basically the disciples shake the dust off their feet, and they begin to minister to Gentiles. Cornelius was the first Gentile that was saved. And upon that moment, Gentiles began coming to Christ all over the world, and the apostles began to minister to Gentiles. So when we think about that, we're all Gentiles. If you're not of Jewish descent, Jewish blood, you are a Gentile. Well, here we have some interesting things that took place in these first four verses. The first thing is we see that there were some uh, tongues of fire that were resting on the above each one that was in that room. When you go back, you see where there's about 120 people in this area, in this place, who were praying and worshiping the Lord. Well, when this happened, it wasn't just the apostles who, who had the Holy Spirit rest upon them, but it would have been the entirety of that, group of, the, of that group of people. It would have been those who were not apostles. It would have been the ladies who were present. It would have been Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, who would have been present. They all received equally the Holy Spirit. And that's very fitting because even today when you get saved, there are some that will say, well, you've not been filled by the Holy Spirit yet. You've not received all of him yet. Well, we have to understand that if the Holy Spirit is a person, he cannot be divided. In other words, you can't get some of the Holy Spirit today and a little bit more tomorrow. You either have him or you don't have him. He either lives within you or he doesn't. But there's no different grades or levels or amounts of the Holy Spirit that you can receive. So today when you get saved, you have just as much of the Holy Spirit as Billy Graham had as any of the apostles had, because the person, God himself, lives within you. It talks about there on verse 3, they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Some of you may have a version of the Bible that says cloven tongues. And what that word cloven there means is essentially separated. So in other words, the glory of God filled that room, and then it separated to rest on each person. And that was a symbolism, both, both symbolically and literally, of the fullness of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believers. See, even though they had trusted in Christ, even though they knew Jesus, they had not been indwelt by the Holy Spirit yet. They lived in kind of that strange period of time, those uh, 50 days between Jesus' resurrection and the Pentecost, where they had not been indwelt by the Holy Spirit yet. They had already been saved. They had already accepted Jesus and then Pentecost come, and that's when the Bible says they were filled and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Since we live on this side of Pentecost, we don't have to wait to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It is now instantaneous when someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. You may have a six-year-old or a seven-year-old who gets saved, who, who realizes their need for Jesus and repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus. Guess what? The moment that seven-year-old trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his person indwells that child. You may be 85 years old today. You've never been saved. If you get saved today, the fullness of God will indwell you just like it does anyone else. The Holy Spirit cannot be separated, and he equally indwells 
all believers. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a little bit different in how much of your life you allow him to have control over. Some Christians, yes, you're fully indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but you don't let him have full control over certain issues of your life. That's a whole different ballgame, but that does not mean you have any less of the Holy Spirit living within you. In verse 4, it talks about these tongues. Now, that's kind of the, the key word, the trigger word that a lot of people get hung up on when they talk about Pentecost. Maybe you came from a Pentecostal holiness background where it was normal for you to see someone stand up in a church service and start speaking in an unknown tongue that you had no idea what they were saying. This is not what was happening here on this day. This, these were not unknown tongues that the Holy Spirit was giving these men to speak. It says in verse 4, Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So first of all, I want you to understand that it was the Holy Spirit who gave them the power to speak in these different tongues. But tongues here in the Greek is the word glossa, which means the language or dialect used by a particular people distinct from that of other nations. In other words, English, French, Spanish, Greek, whatever those languages of those people who were represented there at that time, that was the languages that those people were hearing the gospel in. These Galileans were speaking in Greek and in Hebrew, and these people were hearing it in their native languages, not an unknown tongue. Specific known languages. So it's very important that we understand that, that that was the power that the Holy Spirit was giving these men and women at that moment as they were sharing the gospel to a much larger group of people that would have assembled after that mighty sound of rushing wind had taken place. So we have to understand that. The Holy Spirit is necessary for salvation. When you talk about this great miracle that took place on Pentecost, we're looking at 2022 now. How is this miracle relevant to today? We understand, Ben, that this took place probably around 30 A.D., all right? But now we're 2,000 years in the future. How does the day of Pentecost still apply? Well, it very clearly communicates that the Holy Spirit is necessary in the Christian walk. Before we can have any power, the Holy Spirit must be present. Before anyone in our community can ever be saved, the Holy Spirit must be involved. We must be trusting in and relying on Him and Him alone to save souls. You know, we can have the most beautiful church building. We can have the most eloquent teachers. We can have the, the, the most money. We can have all these things, but none of it is going to matter unless the Holy Spirit is moving and working in our church. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8 record a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, if you remember Nicodemus. Beginning in verse 3, the Bible says this, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus asked, How can anyone be born when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, capital S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Did you hear what Jesus said there? He said it is impossible for you to be born again 
without the Holy Spirit. Without the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in your life to draw you to a place of repentance and acceptance of Jesus. John chapter 6 verse 63 says this, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And those are the words of the Lord Jesus. So you may be asking, okay, Ben, I understand that the Spirit must be involved, that it is a miracle of the Holy Spirit when someone gets saved. It is a working of His power when they get saved. But how can I, as a weak person, as a weak human being, yes, I know Jesus, but how can I do anything great for God? Well, it's the same answer as before. The Holy Spirit must be at work in your life as a believer. You must be yielding yourself to His will and to His power each and every day. There cannot be one part of your life that you have not turned over to Him. Now, I'm not talking about salvation here. We know that salvation is simply trusting Jesus, repenting of your sins, and asking Him to forgive you based upon His death, burial, and resurrection. What I'm saying here is after you're saved... You may be saying, Ben, my prayers feel like they're hitting the ceiling. Ben, I don't feel like God is really using me. I'm not able to share my faith and all these other things. A lot of times the reason that you are not um, effective as a believer in sharing your faith or, or doing great things for God is because you still have things in your life that you've not turned over to Him. You've got things in your life that you like too much. You've got things in your life like sin that you are using as your pet. You pet it. You, you know, you're pretty good in these other areas, but yet you're wanting to hold on to something that's not pleasing to God. That hinders the Holy Spirit in your life, by the way. You know, that, that causes you to not have that full liberty in your fellowship with God when you hold on to sin and you refuse to repent of it. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He's talking to the apostles here, but this is really relevant to all of us. But when you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The presence of the Holy Spirit was so important to the apostles and to their work after Jesus had ascended to heaven in, in evangelizing the world and sharing the gospel with lost people that God said, you know what, we're going to give up some time. As a matter of fact, we're going to wait 10 days. I would much rather you stay in your house, stay put, and pray. Because if you go out too early without the Holy Spirit, it's going to be of no effect. Stay and wait, pray for 10 days, and don't begin evangelizing until the Holy Spirit is upon you. Don't go until His power is going along with you. Because if you try to do something outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, it will be of no effect, and it will be useless, and it will be simply a waste of your time. So that's the first thing that I want us to look at this morning, is the key ingredient. The key ingredient is the Holy Spirit. As we look at our mission as a church, as we go forward, we must go forward with the Holy Spirit. We must let Him lead, we must rely on His power, we must rely on His strength, and we must rely on His ability to save souls, not on our own. The second thing that I want us to see is the human race. Here we're going to see how the Bible views race, how the Bible views diversity, how the Bible views people of other faiths and understandings and cultures. And I think that is something that's quite prevalent in our society today. All you hear is, is well, we've, there's got to be equality. You know, um, there, there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. We've got to make sure that it's this gender and this ethnicity. Or, or we're not equal. We've got to make sure that, you know, children who are of this shade of skin color gets, 
different opportunities than these kids because these kids have gotten all the opportunities for far too long. And it becomes a division in our society. And here's the issue with all that. The human race, there is no separation in Scripture. You don't see anywhere in Scripture where there is a division because of skin color. As a matter of fact, we're going to see where the races came from. The Bible is very clear. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is is that it answers all of life's most difficult questions. We've got psychologists and therapists. We've got college professors, PhDs, who are always trying to discover something new in our issues in society. And you know what they always find out? The Bible said that long before I come up with it. A lot of times science and education and academia has to catch up to the Bible. Because they've refused to humble themselves for the word of God. The word of God actually would fix this problem of race if we would just listen and read it. So beginning in verse 5, we're going to look at the human race. It's important for us as a church to view different ethnicities and skin colors biblically. Because as we go out and evangelize and we go out and do ministry, we're going to run into people who don't look like us, who don't sound like us, and who don't live like us, who have a different background than we do. And we have to understand in our hearts, if there's any issues in our hearts of prejudice or racism in our hearts, we need to get that straight before. we got to get that under the blood first. Because, listen, if God puts someone who's got dark skin in front of you and says, I want you to witness to them, and you can't do it because you dislike that person because of their skin color, then that's a problem. And that is what the Bible calls sin because you're showing partiality. The Bible says that God created man in his image. He created him male and female. He didn't say God created this race in his image or this skin color in his image. He said he created man in his image. Humanity, the human race, has been created in the image of God. So let's go back to the Tower of Babel because, believe it or not, the Pentecost and the Tower of Babel are, all, are, are connected in a lot of ways. Beginning in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says this, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And I want you to pay attention to that plural pronoun that God referred to himself as. Come, let us go down. In other words, the Trinity. Verse 8. So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon, for the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Here you have a place in history where the, the human population was not that big. This would have been very early in, in the creation narrative since Adam had been created. This would not have been too, too many hundreds of years, too many centuries after Adam and Eve, where you would have had a decent-sized population on the planet Earth, but nothing like we do today. So you had the peoples of the earth all speaking the same language. The peoples of the earth all experiencing the same culture. The people of the earth probably all having the same skin color at that point. They probably would have not, they wouldn't have been white. They wouldn't have been black. They probably would have had some, some very dark tan skin at that point, similar to Adam and Eve and what they would have had. Did you know that Adam and Eve wasn't white? 
That'll shock a lot of people, just like Jesus wasn't white. But anyways, so you have this people, they have one language, one culture, and they begin to dishonor God by empowering themselves, elevating themselves to this place where we're going to build this magnificent tower so that we can honor our achievement. In other words, they were elevating themselves to the place of God, to a place of worship. So what God did was he came down and he confused their languages. So what happened was you had these people who could no longer communicate with each other. You had this group who began to speak a different language than this group. And this group, they began to migrate away from each other and build civilizations separately. So then they began to have children. Generation after generation, this group, certain genes began to, to come to the forefront. And they may have developed uh, a different shape eyes, like an almond-shaped eyes. You would have had this group that the gene pool that they were in would have began to elevate a really dark skin color like a black person that we would see today. You would have had this other group who would have, who would have migrated, and, and as they began to have children, their genes would have brought forth very light skin. But here is the key that you need to hear. We all started from the same group. We all have the same parents. And see, skin color is simply the amount of pigmentation known as melanin that you have in your body. And you can actually take a man who is black and a man who is white and another man who is white and the genes of the white man and the black man here can actually be more similar. The DNA could be more similar than the two white men. You know what that says? The level of melanin that's in your body really has nothing to do with who you are. And we divide over that. And now we have a culture that they're propagating this critical race theory that's basically stating that everything in America is racist. That my two-year-old Sammy, because he's raised in a white family, he goes to a predominantly white church, he lives in a predominantly white area, he is inevitably going to be racist. And I, I vehemently deny that. Do not tell me what my child is or is not going to be. That is up to God. That is up to his choices in his life. He is not inherently racist. He is created in the image of God. Listen, if, if someone's a dark skin color out there, an African American, all they've been told their whole life is you, don't, you can't make it. You're never going to be able to make it. You don't have the same opportunities that everyone else has. You might as well not even try. How dare somebody tell them that? Hey, you know what? There are intelligent black people and black women who can do anything any of us can do. How dare they do that? And what we have is a society who is dividing us based upon our race. When the scriptures teach us that we all have the same parents. We have more in common with others because we are human beings created in the image of God. Did you know, and I know I'm getting way off here for a minute, but just listen. I promise I'm going to bring it back around. Charles Darwin was a racist. And I don't know if you know this or not. But actually, Charles Darwin taught that African Americans were less evolved than white people. What he would state was is that a black person is more closely related to an ape than a white person. These people who embrace this CRT junk, they're Darwinists. They believe in evolution. You see where the connections are? You ever read about the founder of Planned Parenthood? Did you know that she wrote a book that was revered by Hitler? Did you know that she systematically placed Planned Parenthood clinics in urban centers that were filled with minorities? 
When's the last time you saw Planned Parenthood in a rich white neighborhood with a gate? You don't see those. You see them in minority populated urban centers. Hey, let me tell you something. The CRT crowd, this crowd that is all about Darwin and evolutionary science and all this other stuff, they're the racist. Did you know that God values all life? Whether in the womb or in the nursing home, whether black or white, whether Asian, whether Hispanic, it doesn't matter. God said that we were created in the image of God. Therefore, not what I can offer, but therefore, because of how I am created, I have eternal value. Because of the child in the womb was created by God Almighty, they have eternal value. The Christians are the only ones, by the way, that have an actual complete worldview that honors all life. Did you know, and, and this is one of the arguments the, the, this group wants to say. Well, you Christians are trying to get rid of abortion. What are you going to do with them when they're born? Did you know that the major, every major orphanage on planet Earth, every major humanitarian organization on planet Earth is Christian? Raise your hand, the last person that heard of an atheist orphanage started by an atheist. An atheist humanitarian organization. You don't hear them because it's the Christians that honor all life. Both the unborn and the born, both the elderly and the sick, it's the Christian worldview that embraces and honors all life. We have the answer, guys. You know, we talk about wanting to reach our community. Hey, number one, I want to reach them because I want them to be saved. But number two, I want to reach them so that they can embrace a worldview that is actually true, that is actually complete, and that actually works that actually honors life and, and elevates life and elevates the value of humanity and understands why we are to love each other, why we are to honor. Why should I treat someone like I want to be treated? Did you know that's not a natural inclination of a human being? Your natural inclination is to take all you can from somebody to better yourself, not regarding them. The Bible teaches to love your neighbor as yourself. That is a Christian idea, a Christian worldview. It's amazing how many times you may talk to an atheist and they cannot explain morality without borrowing from the Bible. They can't even explain why they're here without borrowing ideas and truths from God's word. You know why they can't do it? Because God is real. Because God made them. Because they inherently, within their hearts, know that they have a creator who loves them and who made them. Yet they are denying and oppressing the truth within them. Lastly, what I want us to see is we, we know the human race is important. As we go out and we share the gospel, I don't care what color, I don't care what race, I don't care if it's a Hindu, a Muslim, I don't care where they're from, you are to love them as Christ loved the church. You are to love them because they're created in the image of God. Do not look at a Muslim and say you're less. Do not hate Muslims. Do not hate people that we dislike or that are different from us. They are created in the image of God. We are all one human race. And lastly, I want you to write this down. Naysayers, get in or get out. Here at Pole Creek, we're going a certain direction. We're going to reach our community. We're going to see souls saved. And that's what we're going to be about. And you've got two options. You can get in, get on board, or you can get out. And that, because we're not changing our direction. But you know why we're not changing our direction? Not because it's Ben's idea, but because it's God's idea. It's in the Word of God. So when we think about the day of Pentecost, there were even naysayers on the day of Pentecost. Can you believe that? They must have been a bunch of Baptists. Huh. Man, I didn't even realize they were around back then. Well, when you go on down to verse 13 of chapter 2, the Bible says this. But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. 
In other words, what they were saying is no way a bunch of people can be having that much fun and not be drunk. That didn't know what the world says about the church sometimes. There ain't no way that you guys have any fun. You've got to be drinking. You've got to be smoking dope. You know, that's because the world, they think that's the only way you can have fun. You've got to alter your mind. You've got to do all this stuff. Hey, listen, Christians have the most fun in the world, and we do it on the Holy Spirit. We do it because the presence of the creator of the universe lives within us. If anybody can really know how to have fun, it's Christians. We can have fun because we know that whether we live or we die, we're okay. Man, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Whether I, whether I see tomorrow or not, that's okay. I know where I'm going. God, the God of the universe, has sealed me until the day of redemption. And I don't have to worry about that. Boy, that's dangerous. I mean, if that would ever click in our minds, we would be a force to be reckoned with. You know, we'd quit worrying about this and that. We'd quit worrying about offending people. We'd quit worrying about, you know, making sure our bank accounts are just right, making sure our lives look just right, making sure I wear just the right clothes, making sure all this other stuff. And we'd actually go and do business with God. We'd do business for God. We'd see people saved. There will always be those who mock, undermine, and obstruct progress. Anytime that you involve the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's going to be people who try to obstruct it. Sometimes they're outside of the church. Sometimes they're even inside of the church. Have you ever met one person who always carries a wet blanket? I know I have. And they've always got that wet blanket ready to throw it on you. It's almost like, yeah, go ahead, say something positive. Bam! You know, we all know them. Don't lie. Don't you lie. You know it. Some of it may be your spouse. and you know, We'll have to talk about that later. We, we can do some marriage counseling later, okay? But one of their favorite phrases is this, it'll never work. Boy, that's a good idea, but it ain't going to work. Don't tell me that. We've tried that before, and it was a flop. Aren't you getting a little too excited about all this? You ever heard that one? You need to just calm down before you become a fanatic. Hey, you know what? There's some things worth being a fanatic about. There's some things worth looking a little weird about. You never heard that song, Jesus Freak? I mean, I think that's, a, that, that's pretty fitting for a lot of Christians. Look, they look at you like you're a freak. The world looks at you like you're a freak, you know? But we know the truth. We have the real God living within us, and sometimes that pushes us to do stuff that really isn't logical, you know? I mean, people who would sell everything they've got, a man who's making $150,000 a year living in a big fancy house, sells everything he has to go to Africa and be a missionary. You know, America, uh, you know, people in America look, what are you doing? You're going to go and you're going to live in poverty? You had it made. Hey, the Holy Spirit got a hold of them. And they decided they were going to do what God wanted above what man wanted. They were going to listen to God rather than man. The Bible teaches in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. And that's really all that is. Anytime someone obstructs the furtherance of the gospel, it is a scheme of the devil. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Did you know that there are spiritual beings known as demons? Demons who rebelled against God in heaven and were cast to earth. Their leader is Satan himself. The one thing that they hate the most is when we tell somebody about Jesus. Listen, they really don't care if you go to church. Satan and his armies don't really care if you have a pew at church that you always sit on. They don't even really care if you give your money to the church. 
But when you start telling people that Jesus died and rose again and that they need him, that they need to be saved, and that their sins can be forgiven by him, that's when all the forces of hell will come against you. As we're doing our evangelism explosion training on Wednesday and Sunday nights, and we've got a a great crowd that's going through that training with us, one of the most important things that we continue to tell them is, is that you need to recruit prayer partners. So in other words, when you come into the Evangelism Explosion class and you begin to take these classes, you need to have some, one of your trusted friends or family members praying for you as you're taking that class. Because here's what's going to happen. When you take the class, Satan hates it. He's like, okay, wait a minute. They're starting to, they're starting to catch on to what this thing is really all about. And see, his goal is, is to take as many people to hell with him as possible. That's his goal. That is his number one priority. You know why? Because the more people he takes to hell, the more of God's image he destroys. That's why Satan loves murder. That's why he loves human trafficking, because he hates the image of God. He hates the value of human life, because we reflect God's glory. And the more people that he can take to hell, and the more people he can ruin by sin, the better it makes him feel, because he knows he's going to hell anyways. He knows his end is finished and already decided, so he's going to hurt God as much as he can while he still can. And that's why he hates when we share the gospel. That is the number one sword in his back that he cannot stand. So we encourage them to have a prayer partner praying over them. And we also encourage everyone taking the class to rely and rest on the Holy Spirit. Don't go out and share your faith until you've spent time with God, until you've prayed, until you've lifted up that person to him. You may not even know the person you're going to share with yet, but you could say something like, God, go before me and prepare the heart of the person that you're going to have me speak to today. Maybe it's a coworker. God, go ahead and prepare their heart for when you give me an opportunity to share my faith with them. You know what? I don't like to say, God, if you give me an opportunity. I don't like to say that. I say, God, when you give me that opportunity, because I'm trusting by faith that he's going to give me the opportunity, then go before and begin to prepare their heart for what they're going to hear. Because, listen, you say, well, I don't know if it's God's will if I share the gospel. Well, the Bible's already commanded you to share the gospel. That's one thing you don't have to pray and ask him about. You don't have to say, God, should I share the gospel today? No, you've already been told to share it. What you need to be praying is, God, when you give me the opportunity, prepare their hearts and make them ready to hear that. So today we are talking about that miracle of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon mankind. We are now the benefactors of that. Those of you who know Jesus, have him living within you today. The gift of tongues as we see it in this account is no longer happening. Okay? I want us to be careful to understand that that miracle of tongues and the way that it was at the day of Pentecost was a one-time event, and it has ceased. But I want you to focus on this. The miracle of the Holy Spirit is still changing lives each and every day. The miracle of the Holy Spirit can still save an old sinner. It may be someone that you think, you know what, they're never going to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit can break them. The Holy Spirit can save them. I've been praying for them for 20 years, Ben. I don't think they're ever going to accept Jesus The Holy Spirit can save them. Remember what the Holy Spirit did to the Apostle Paul? As he was a Christian killer, a persecutor of Christians, God saved him. God took him. And he was the most effective evangelist and apostle the world has ever seen. Today, if you're under the sound of my voice, the first thing I want you to think about is this. Do you have the Holy Spirit living within you? Have you ever accepted Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever trusted him, turned from your sin and turned to him and said, Jesus, I want you? If you haven't, that's the first thing that you need to do today. Because without him, you don't have an eternity in heaven. Without him, you don't have hope. Without him, you don't have a relationship 
with your creator. And secondly, you may be sitting there today and say, Ben, I'm overwhelmed by sharing my faith. I'm overwhelmed by the mission of Pole Creek. I'm overwhelmed by what God is asking me to do. I want you to be relieved by this. The Holy Spirit will give you the power to do it. He'll go with you. He'll take care of all the small stuff. You just say, yes, Lord. You just obey him. Today you may have some sin in your life that you need to get under the blood that's been hindering you in your walk with God. You may be, uh, God may be calling you to do something great. You've been pushing against it. Today, maybe you just need to say, yes, Lord, I'll do it. Yes, God, I'll go. Yes, God, whatever you want from me, I will do it. Today you can make those commitments to him. And I promise you, when you go with God, there's no greater freedom and liberty that you'll ever experience than when you're in his will.